Welcome to Inside Pathology, a series where we bring you stories from the pathology services that support patient care. I'm Nana E. Mensah, one of the Viapath Future Leaders in Innovation, and in this episode, we're entering the world of clinical genetics. Okay, well, so Freddie's eight and a half now, and um, the first idea that we ever had that anything would be different to a regular pregnancy was at my 20-week scan. We just went along and thought, oh, you know, they'll just ask us if we want to know the sex of the baby, give us a, a rough due date, and then we'll be on our way. And um, that wasn't our experience. That's Amy Mann, a proud parent whose journey into motherhood led her to the doors of a clinical genetic service. Through my interview with Amy, we'll learn what a genetic test result means for patients and their families. We'll also hear from the professionals who steer patients through the storms of uncertainty. And we'll understand the role scientists play in this service today. So, what exactly is clinical genetics? It's a remarkable fact that nearly every cell in your body carries DNA, a molecule with the instructions to make you. You might know these instructions by another name, your genes. Nature isn't perfect, and some rare instructions can cause life-threatening health problems. Shortly after DNA was discovered in the 1950s, medical professions started to interrogate it in the hopes of treating these diseases, and the field of clinical genetics was born. Since then, it's come leaps and bounds. In 2001, the sequence of the human genome was published, the first map of human DNA. From it, we learned that our DNA is made up of 3 billion units and that just 0.1% makes each of us unique. We call these genetic variants. Today, clinical genetics has become genomic medicine and it's transforming the way we help patients with genetic conditions. Patients and their parents, like Amy. And so what they could see by looking at the scan initially was that he had enlarged ventricles so we were then referred to um, a much bigger central hospital in the city. And that was really the beginning of, well, scans every week. Quite scary. And, and actually, every time we went to have another scan, they would see something else. <laughs> and there would be another change and another difference. They were checking out his kidneys and his liver, uh, a hole in the heart, a corpus callosum, but it was really thin and sort of reduced sulci and gyration of his brain as well and reduced white matter. And all along this process, because there was no definitive answer and therefore no prognosis, no real idea what was going on, we were still being offered termination of that pregnancy. As a prospective parent, nothing can prepare you for complications during pregnancy. Amy was kind enough to share exactly how she felt. It's just a a blurred sea of of nothingness. You really don't know where you are. But that was our very first baby. That we were the only ones, as far as we could see, in that situation. Because we just felt so isolated and so alone. But no one could tell us, so we just had lots of hope, really. And as it happened, Freddie was born spontaneously at 35 weeks. Against the odds, Freddie was born. It's hard to imagine anything other than relief for Amy and her husband at this moment. But, of course, questions remained. I mean, it's it's so tricky because your your emotions are so high um, and it's really trying to accept that you feel the way that you do. And that could be any any manner of different level. You, you, know, you could be delighted that your baby came, which we were. We were just so relieved that he'd arrived and arrived safely. 
Um, but equally, you're confused and you're worried and you're scared for the future and all of those things. And unless you work in that field, which I, you know, neither my husband or I have ever worked in anything medical, you just you just have no idea. You have you have really no idea about what's going on, about what the tests are that are out there, what it really means. And it just wouldn't it just didn't occur to us that it could be anything genetic anyway. When you're in that state, it's very you're you're looking for answers really. I spent a long time looking for another Freddie or someone that could tell me what was going to happen or what to do. Amy was referred to her regional genetic service, made up of doctors, technicians, scientists, counsellors and administrators, working together to find the cause of Freddie's disease. We call these rare diseases. They're life-threatening genetic conditions. Individually, each disease affects only a small number of the population. Today, we know of over 5,000 rare diseases, and together, they affect the lives of three and a half million people in the UK. When patients like Freddie visit a genetic service, doctors order tests from the lab, looking for the instructions in Freddie's DNA that may tell us the cause of his disabilities. In the last decade, the techniques we use in the lab to perform these tests have transformed. Dr. Dragana Yosifova, a consultant in clinical genetics, has seen this transformation with her own eyes. So in the last 10 years, there has been a huge move towards molecular diagnosis in patients with rare conditions. And what we used to diagnose in the past on clinical grounds, we are now able to confirm those diagnoses by genetic tests. So the availability of genetic tests has enabled us to establish a specific causative etiological diagnosis in patients. And that has had significant impacts on the families. It has opened opportunities for couples to make informed choice for future pregnancies. Genetics is one of the most recent disciplines in pathology, and genetic testing has transformed the practice. Technicians and scientists are the members of the workforce tasked with delivering these tests. It works like this. Patients and family members give a sample, often blood, which is sent to the lab for testing. DNA is extracted from the sample, and where once we were only able to look at chromosomes down a microscope, more modern technologies read the individual units of DNA. Whatever the technology, scientists come to a conclusion and the findings are reported to the clinic. Rachel Mayhew is a scientist in a molecular pathology lab. Here's how she describes her job. Essentially, in that role, we're performing tests, analysing the results from that test, interpreting it to find out what it means for the patient, then generating a report that can go back to the clinician. So what exactly ends up on the report? So it kind of all depends on the question that's been asked by the clinician. Sometimes it's just a straightforward, please can you test them and see if they have this condition. Sometimes we're testing family members of a patient to see if they have genetic variants that could be important for them and their family. And then sometimes we're testing to inform treatment. The value of a diagnosis lies in its potential to change patients' lives. Like all fields of pathology, the aim of genetics is to find answers to the questions raised by the genetic condition. Amy and her husband had one of the most difficult questions of all. The question that any parent inevitably asks, what's the cause of their child's condition? From memory, I think he was about 14 months old. And we had been to see a paediatrician and they had basically described a little bit about this DDD study. And um, 
had asked us if we wanted to take part and it was completely voluntary it was entirely up to us uh, but one of our biggest concerns at the time was really trying to find out if what was going on with Freddie was life limiting because I'd come across you know a number of people that were having this sort of situation and and losing their children very early and it's just so frightening and not really knowing and not knowing how to plan for anything um, and we just wanted to know we wanted to know if there was a possibility that that could be our situation as, as awful as it would have been to hear those words that your child is life limited for us it made more sense for us to know what was happening Freddie was tested by his regional genetic service but the results were negative in genetics we don't always find an answer but a negative report from modern technologies is actually filled with potential it says we didn't find the cause of disease but we have the patient's data on record so in the future when we better understand the genome we may be able to search again and find an answer large-scale research into rare diseases tries to find answers for patients freddie was recruited to one such project the deciphering developmental disorder study and the wait began in the meantime, Amy wanted to know what would happen if she and her husband had another child. We wanted to get a little bit more information. So I did call uh, the genetics team and I explained the situation that we would like to expand the family. But we had reservations and we were concerned. We didn't know if we could cope with having two children with those similar sorts of disabilities because it's, um, it's really hard work. It's emotionally exhausting. It costs more money. Um, you know, the time taken away from Bella as well. It's, it's very hard. There's a lot of guilt involved in it. We just weren't sure if we were really up for doing that again. So we were hoping that they could give us some answers a bit quicker. So they, they, they did try their best and they would regularly sort of update and say, oh, no, we still haven't found anything. This is the Diagnostic Odyssey. Despite the promise of genomic medicine, rare disease patients are often left in limbo. If a diagnosis comes at all, the typical wait lasts not days, not months, but years. It was about four, four years, I think it took. Um, and I really, to be honest, had resigned myself to the fact that we probably wouldn't get an answer because it had been quite a long time. I had a call from the genetics team and they said, we think we have an answer for you. And I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> I thought, wow, I cannot actually believe that you ha now have an answer. Um, and so within a couple of weeks, it was quite quick for us, actually, which was we were grateful for. We were able to go in and, and meet with them and, and tell us about what they'd found, really. Four years waiting, and what did they find? There were a, no, a handful of cases, and I think at the time there were only about seven cases and Freddie. And the children were aged between about two and nine on the caseload. And they all had very similar markers within the development of their brain. Um, some of them were slightly different. So Freddie does have a corpus callosum, but it's thin, but some of them had no corpus callosum. So there were okay. little changes. But the thing that really connected them together is that uh, Freddie and the other children that they came across have a neurological eyesight condition called hyperplastic optic disc. And okay. that, in the end, was the connecting factor because she said there are so few genes that are actually connected to that, that area that this is how they've, they've come and made the decision. And his diagnosis is so rare. He is less than one in a million currently, um, called Tuba 1A. Four years, one gene, and a genetic change that makes Freddie less than one in a million. Tuba 1A. It's an answer, but 
What exactly does it mean? Tuberone is one of the families of genes known as tuberulinopathies or tubulin genes. Tubulin genes are very important for brain development because they guide the neurons to reach their final destination in proper order. So uh, changes in uh, any of the tubulin genes are highly likely to be associated with what is known as cortical malformations, which may come in different types and different flavors. But the essential component of all of these is that children are highly likely to present with developmental delay, with small head circumference, and with susceptibility or overt seizures, the MRI scan, particularly in some forms of uh, tubulin-associated uh, conditions, can be quite suggestive of a tubulin uh, disorder. And often these MRI findings can be a guide for us to navigate the genetic investigations. Every scan and every test Freddie took in the health service, combined with the few similar patients, guided researchers to one conclusion. A change in Freddie's DNA that codes for the tuber 1A protein led to his disabilities. As a mother, Amy went from knowing that her child had a neurological disorder to knowing the exact molecular cause. In that moment, what was the answer worth? I found the... I found the session... Um, quite enlightening. I was kind of relieved. Um, there's just so many emotions that go with it. Really, what we still have to continue to do is really to treat him in the way that we did before we had a diagnosis, which was really to treat the sort of the symptoms. What it does do is it starts to give you a bit more understanding about why he's got the difficulties that he has. And, um, and then the more you know, the more you learn, the more you can find other ways to help. And, and really, the reason for doing that from, from our point of view, but we are just trying to give him every single possibility that we can within our power to have him have the best possible experience of life going forward. With that information, it means that we can make some better choices, I guess. So it's, it is really worth it actually going through the process and, and getting an answer. A clinical genetic test is unique because a diagnosis doesn't guarantee a change in treatment or management, but it does open doors that were closed before. Leila Afkami is a clinical scientist working in a Viapath Genetics rare disease testing lab, and she has insight into the impact these answers can have on patients' lives. So often, as a lot of listeners are well aware of, um, not all genetic conditions have got treatment. Some do, but a cure is very rare, and even treatment a lot of the time isn't fully effective. But just having an answer, I think, gives patients a lot of... Um, clarity into what sort of uh, diseases might run through their family. Also, that allows patients to get in touch with other patients or families who have also got that same condition. So if it's a rare disease, it may be a global network where there's only a handful of people in the world. For Amy, that's exactly what happened. I know you know Swan UK, which is Syndromes Without a Name. It's the only charitable organisation out there that supports children and adults really who don't have a diagnosis to explain their difficulties and the families. And that was a complete game changer for me because there were thousands of families out there. I think there's 6,000 children born each and every year who do not have a diagnosis to explain their disabilities and special needs. Um, and suddenly, although all the children were totally different, I'd finally found my crew. And only last week, in fact, I was contacted by a mum who 
lives probably only a couple of hours away from me who has twin daughters who both have tuber 1a and uh, and her daughters are about 16 but they present quite differently to freddie so it's still hard but there is also a facebook group which i found which was set up by a lady in the states it's tuber 1a families that's what it's called many of the children also have other things going on there are a small small handful maybe about four who present quite like freddie where, where possibly they've just got tuber 1a it has been really interesting Having a name for the challenge that you and your family face is invaluable because not only does it reduce uncertainty about the condition, it opens doors that connect you with others on the same journey. Perhaps unlike any other test, it also holds hope for future patients. As more rare diseases are discovered, studies lead us to understand them in more detail. Amy was approached to join a Tuba 1A study three years after Freddie's diagnosis. I said yes straight away because if if we can give our information over and anybody else so that the next generation of families or mothers and fathers that are in my situation who have a child and they don't know it and they get a, a diagnosis of tuber 1A, they've got somewhere to go. They haven't got to be in the limbo that we were in. So hopefully in the near future, there will be a study put together about tuber 1A, which um, I think would be hugely beneficial to many, many people. The fact that a diagnosis can change the lives of people now and in the future has led to ever larger research studies. In 2013, the UK government launched the 100,000 Genomes Project, and the aim was to sequence 100,000 genomes from patients with undiagnosed rare diseases and cancers within the NHS. The project was ambitious in its scale and technology because it used whole genome sequencing, a newer technology that was able to interrogate the genetic code in more detail than ever before. And in December 2018, the project reached a milestone. The 100,000th genome was sequenced. From our seat in the crowd at the celebration event, we heard Sir Mark Caulfield, then CEO of Genomics England, telling us how the project has transformed lives. A case to illustrate how the diagnostic policy is painful. This child at four months developed epilepsy and developmental delay had been in various different projects, not got an answer, and came to our attention at the age of four. We found that she had a sugar transporter change that affected sugar transfer from the bloodstream into her brain. And so when her brain sugar dropped down, she would get seizures. These seizures were unresponsive to any medicines. This change was just in her, not in the rest of her family. And so her mum and dad can now consider having other children. Uh, And... The important thing is that this paved the way, and this won't happen for all of our participants, but for some it will, paved the way for the application of a treatment, a high-fat diet, which reduced her through seizures. It also improved some of her developmental uh, delay. And this child had 6.4 million variants, of which 2,826 changed a protein, of which 67 were different from a mum and dad, and of which one was the clear cause. That's the process that we do between 10 and 35 hours on the 3.3 billion letters that make you the person you are, but can also sadly carry susceptibility to disease. From the beginning, this wasn't just a research project. It was a pilot to figure out what whole genome sequencing could do for patients in the NHS. Patients and families just like Amy's. On the project, one in five rare disease patients are receiving diagnoses and around half the cancer patients are being exposed to clinical trials for therapies, 
From the back of this, the NHS has launched the world's first national genomic medicine service, upgrading 25% of the 300,000 genetic tests to newer technologies. So the future is bright, but so much more needs to be done, not just in diagnostics, but in developing therapies for rare disease patients. At the celebration event, one speaker quoted Winston Churchill. He said, now this is not the end. This isn't even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. But the future is a global coalition of insects to solve these diseases. And our goal must be, and it is your mission for these coming five years, to help me and the team of Genomics England make the UK with the NHS in England the leader in transformation of world healthcare for genomic medicine. Thank you very much. There are many professionals working to deliver this mission. First and foremost, there's doctors. On Freddie's journey to date, he's been supported directly by his geneticist, neurologist, paediatrician and physiotherapist. And behind the scenes, scientists are also mission critical. We ask the question, what's it like to be a genomic scientist? First, let's hear from Rachel and Lisa. I'm Lisa, I'm a genetic technologist and I'm going to be asking Rachel some questions about her job today. How would you describe your role to a patient, Rachel? I work in a molecular pathology lab that specialises in haematology, bone marrow transplant, or whether their sibling is an appropriate donor, things like that. I would say it's very varied. No kind of two patients are the same, so no two cases are the same. Because it's varied, you do get exposure to a lot of different things. We use lots of different tests. There's lots of different methodologies that are being used. So, yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about your career route? I started off training as a biomedical scientist, similar but different to clinical science. And I did that as part of my degree. And then after that, I decided to do a master's because I kind of just wanted to learn a bit more about genetics and genomics. There's something I was really interested in. Then after that, I took a job as a bioinformatician. Got some really good experience and worked for about a year. Pre-registration clinical scientist job opportunity came up in the same lab. And so I applied for that and was successful. Are there any alternative routes to become a clinical scientist? Yes. I'd say the main route is the scientist training programmes, the STP, which is kind of like a three-year course with an intercalated master's. And kind of you apply for a particular specialism um, complete the training programme over three years and then you get to rotate round as well to get quite a lot of breadth as well. And then there's the route that I'm doing, which is kind of, I guess, more in-house training. So kind of based in one lab and they provide all of your training. And then there's the equivalence route, I think. Yeah. So for people that have a lot of experience and training, probably equivalent to that of a clinical scientist, but just haven't got registration as a clinical scientist. Ultimately, with all of those three routes, you create a portfolio of evidence to say that you are competent and then once you submit that portfolio they assess it and then determine whether you pass or fail I guess. That sounds great. Sounds lovely. (laughs) Um, What advice would you give to someone who would like to become a clinical scientist? I would say if you're just starting out getting any experience in a lab setting is really useful and beyond just your kind of research lab setting at uni. Understanding how things work why testing is performed is really really useful because I think a lot of jobs now want people with experience people are really competent and then can kind of just get stuck in because it's a very very busy specialty. Thank you very much Rachel. Thanks Lisa. Clinical genetics is a rewarding field that spans many specialist services focusing on a wide range of genetic conditions. 
the scientists all share a certain number of skills. Here's Leila once again. Investigative skills are critical to be able to do this job. You have to take different bits of evidence from different parts of the patient pathway and incorporate these together to be able to come up with a diagnosis for the patient. I went into this career because I love a challenge. If there's a puzzle that I need to solve, I'm straight on it. So that's kind of how my job feels every day. Um, giving an answer to patients can be very rewarding. And also just working at the forefront of science. Genetics is a really hot area at the moment, and I can see that continuing in the future. So yeah, it's a really exciting area to work in. As a trainee scientist myself, I can echo what Rachel and Layla have shared. It's been extremely rewarding to work in a field that helps patients from behind the scenes. To end, I asked Amy if she had any advice for budding young scientists interested in clinical genetics. Go for it, because I think it's still understudied to a degree um, and we need more bright, brilliant young people who are dedicated to finding out what happens you know, to the human body, to humans, to children, to adults, because all of those things, all of the information that you can gather and put together through genomics means that we have, we know we're just better educated, we can help treat people better, we can perhaps look at um, you know, preventing, preventing illnesses from happening in actual fact. The more that we understand, and I, I think it is such a fascinating topic and one that can be so incredibly helpful to families like mine, but many, many other people with lots of other challenges going on. And I would just say go for it because we need as many good people in this country as we possibly can. So yeah, do it. This episode of Inside Pathology was brought to you by Viapath and the Viapath Future Leaders in Innovation. We'd also like to thank our guests, Amy Mann, Dragana Yosifova, Lisa Rauter, Rachel Mayhew, and Leila Afkami. A special thank you to Amy Mann for sharing her story with us. Amy runs her own podcast for parents like herself called CEO of Your Special Needs Family. You can find out more at her website, amymannmentoring.com. Links to this and other information in our show notes. Thank you for listening.